Hello, my name is uh, Bernard Hreling. I'm the CTO at MzanziSat. And essentially, we want to propose an alternative way for South Africa to connect. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here. You know we are living in a new age when you can say connect and, and people know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, it, there's a lot of ambiguity, but um, we all know the, the pipeline that we, we choose to plug in and to reach out with friends and family and business. So, yeah, connected in the sense of, uh, of telecommunications and, and data, ultimately. Yeah, and so, you know, before we jump into Set and everything you guys are quite audaciously out to achieve, there's a conversation we had offline a moment ago about how Levi's came up in the past servicing the gold rushes or the, the, the mineral rushes of, you know, North America. And, and then we talked about how, you know, we might draw parallels between that and, and today's world where there might be industries or players within certain industries that are out to do the same, that aren't necessarily part of the mainstream gold rush, but are like Levi's enabling it in some way and profiting along the way, right? So I don't know if I've set that up correctly, but give me a sense of, you know, let our listeners into that debate or that, that thinking and, and how it started to come into conversation. Okay, so, so the basic conversation or the idea goes that fundamentally any given industry that wants to flourish industrially um, is only as good as the logistics and the infrastructure that support it. So um, if you consider something like um, transport goods, if we want to drop the barrier or the consumer cost for a package internationally, we need to optimize and, and reinforce the industries that allow that package to be there. That's not only the company that transports goods, but it's also the, the physical roads and the airports that actually facilitate that, that, uh, that package to be transferred. <clears throat> now, in that sense, um, the internet is not too different in that um, there's a lot of derived goods and services that fundamentally depend on the connection between point to point um, for this to happen. But if the infrastructure does not exist... And if it's not accessible, that's the important one. If the the infrastructure is not accessible to these end users, then it, it will remain unavailable and cost inefficient. Which industries are the Levi's of our day within this context? Oh, it's definitely telecommunications companies. It's the companies that supply the bandwidth, the infrastructure and the means to connect act as the, as the Levi's of the 21st century, the, essentially the facilitators. If we were to drop it down to the 19th to the 20th century, um, things like Telegram and the railroad would come to mind. Um, Telegram is actually very interesting. Like in the early, I think it's the late 19th century, earliest, early 20s, um, the first submarine cables that were laid between the, what, the east coast of the US and I think it's Wales or Ireland, don't quote me on that, I'm not sure. Um, it was a telegram network, and this was all auxiliary industries to simply facilitate like speedy communication. Um, so, yeah, like if you if, if you look at the gold rush in the in the in the in the south and these oil industries, um, railroad was there. It's a basic infrastructure. Telegrams were there. It's a basic infrastructure that people needed to either transport goods and communicate. Now, where that kind of gets strange is um, in the twenty first century. We have perceived value through um, through products that are piped t 
to us or supplied to us. So a valuable end user product is essentially like transported to us through the conduit of the internet. So in in a sense, we've combined communication with transportation in a like valuable end user service. So essentially, it's the telegram meets the train, which is now in our rooms, which is weird, but yeah, it's awesome. So here's the thing, though. I think one of the, the nasty legacies of this, this whole thing is, um, it's certainly within the context of the African continent, when one thinks about these enabling institutions, these enabling developments infrastructurally, control was certainly centralized. Control over them, their commercial exploitation, who got to benefit when and to what extent. All of these things seemed centralized in, in quite a few people who controlled these entities, who, you know, financed them, who wielded political power over how they should, they ought to be used. And I think that's the weird legacy we're all inheriting. And that's where I get, I start to get dissonance. What do you make of that? Okay, well, so at this point, it's, we can draw an exact parallel to what you're saying, to the current situation on the African continent, especially with regards to information access. So with data access, we've got submarine cables that terminate at various points along the African coast. And most of these institutions are either privately funded by some South African companies. Okay, very few of this is is by the state, for the state, um, and within the interest of a nation. So, so this is where I want to make that leap and jump out of this classical sense of, of, uh, of infrastructure and and step exactly into what Mzanzi Sat tries to do. So we propose that South Africa launch, own, and operate um, their first or the first geostationary satellite solution for internet bandwidth. So in that sense, it is a state asset which is partly owned and operated by the South African government with South African interests in mind. Give us all a sense of why, if... I were MTN listening to that proposal. I instantly have a problem. So think MTN, think Utilsat. We had the CEO of their sub-Saharan business on on the show quite recently. And give me a sense of why perhaps even the folks at Convergence Partners who are invested in CECOM, you know, and who have, it can be argued, leveraged the, the free market to create a, a lot of value for everyday citizens of South Africa and other places. Give me a sense of what you think their arguments against what you've just proposed might be. I fundamentally believe that it's not against them. So so I'm going to address two separate entities. So when I'm looking at CECOM first, we actually have a meeting set up with them. So we have an established relationship. And it's, in fact, a supplementary environment. Um, as we anticipate like consumer growth and demand for internet bandwidth increases, um, it's inevitable that there needs to be auxiliary supplementary services to, to cat, pick up the slack. Ultimately, the internet is a big mesh network. So if you, can, if you can shorten the path or facilitate the transfer easily, then that plays in, into exactly their market. So it's, it's a zero-sum game with, with regards to CECOM. If the dream were to occur immediately, which is... 90 to 99% internet penetration across the African continent at affordable rates, access is totally democratized on the internet. You're saying CECOM would need to partner with the likes of you because 
they would definitely benefit from the infrastructure that you're looking to provide? Well, fundamentally, I would say your 99% estimate is flawed in that it, it would never, at the current trajectory, be a reality. I've sat down with various execs from various telcos and the hardware manufacturers that, that supplement like the African continent. And the fact of the matter is um, the economies of, of telecommunications, especially when we look at now wireless telecommunications and wired telecommunications, if your population density is not high enough at any given position, it is economically not viable to install or supply like that that demographic of people or that area. So when it comes to remote areas, um, I've had people look at me and say, Bernard, we are currently rolling out 4G in most of the metros. I can promise you that most of South Africa will never see internet speeds beyond 3G. Okay, so by simple, simply saying, well, what is the infrastructure cost to serve a, a certain number of people? How many people are in a specific uh, remote area? Um, and, uh, and, and looking at what the projected value or income would be from that area, you will never supply them with internet. So where a satellite comes in, and this is partly to address your previous question with regards to MTN, is we're not here to take anyone's business at all. We're here to simply say, hey, a geostationary satellite has the ability to cover at any given time a third of the globe, okay? So that means um, within our footprint, we cover the entirety of South Africa and the African continent. Doesn't matter where you are, as long as you can see the sky, you're connected. So in that sense, it doesn't matter if you're in Karasburg or if you're in um, like somewhere in the northwest or somewhere along the coast or somewhere in the Karua. Like as long as you can see the sky, you're sorted. You can connect. So that's our primary value proposition that the economies um, of terrestrial infrastructure does need not apply. How shouldn't and how wouldn't that freak out an MTN who have, by their own argument, invested quite heavily in the infrastructure you describe? How is this not a disruption to, to the way they've planned to make money over the foreseeable short term? Well, that's simple. We simply feed into their existing infrastructure. Connecting a, a small KU band dish to a to an existing bowl or a um, radio tower somewhere, um, it not only allows them to potentially lower their margins by providing a narrower, leaner internet solution. Remember, there's no maintenance, there's no ground segment, there's no no wires anywhere. Um, so, providing a lower margin ground segment to actually supply their di- data, they can potentially increase their margins, and it's it's essentially the same thing. Um, the big value proposition here comes in in that because we can operate at such low margins, because we have the satellite solution, we need to also ensure that those savings are carried over to the consumer. I was going to say, there's the socialist capitalist side of me, right? There's a little corner of me that's... <laughs> so there's a little socialist capitalist side to me that's like... The fact that you're having these sort of conversations or that you're inherently willing to make this a win-win with the likes of an MTN, there's something about that that feels like, no, disrupt them, man. Like, they've enjoyed a monopoly for long enough. Why would you even consider that? Is this something you're considering because pragmatically you understand the need to ingratiate yourself towards 
governments who might otherwise say no or perceive wholesale disruption of certain industries as a bad thing. Why are you approaching this as a, as a potential win-win with the likes of an MTN as opposed to, say, a zero-sum game where they used to be and you are, you are now the new game in town? Well, um, to be honest, w <laughs> this, this might as well be an open invitation for that ecosystem to develop. The beautiful thing about a geostationary satellite in this context, it has a, a roughly a 15-year operational window. So within that timeline, there is a high-throughput dedicated service, which we aim to run efficiently, effectively, and persistently. So 99% uptime as effectively as possible. And, and so within that context, we make it an open invitation. Look, if you are a business and you would like to buy data from us to redistribute it from where you are, that's fine. Because that's not necessarily the business you're, you're, you're trying to build and manage. No, 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 not at all. Our business, our core business is to supply a state asset to the country to fundamentally decrease the cost of information. Because um, to tie into our previous conversation, fundamentally, we aim to decrease the barrier to entry, to, to make it easier and more accessible for individuals and companies and, and people across South Africa to share their story and to, to get access to these valuable services. When we look at like education and, and we look at the access to information, the, the utility of tra traditional um, educational institutions have now come into question. But, but we, can only, we can only start questioning these institutions when an alternative source of information is available. And it's freely accessible. So having access to, to good internet services and having it affordably, that's the primary step to, to challenging, well, why do I have to drive 50 kilometers to get to a school? Why can't I just look after my family and get educated at the same time? Why does my SIM card stop working as soon as I enter the Karua? Or why do I have to get a new SIM card to avoid ridiculous interconnect fees by roaming, you know, when I when I just cross the border into Swaziland. No, exactly. So um, I was at an ITU conference at the CTO meeting um, about two weeks ago in Durban, three weeks. Um, and one of the primary concerns that was listed um, by all of these CTOs was over-the-top services. So this these are services that challenge the conventional paradigm of telecommunications where it's a voice service. And if you roam, if you leave your service area, we will make sure you pay for it. So that's a large part of the margin. I couldn't believe it when I heard this. But these over-the-top services that they define as, so data, WhatsApp, digital calls. Um, when's the last time you tried to phone someone with your personal number internationally? It, it, it's absurd. Well, my folks to Zim from time to time, yeah. Yeah, but it's absurd. Like, if, someone, if someone's now in, like, traveling, I wouldn't even think of trying to phone them it's all it's either skype or whatsapp and whatsapp 90 percent of the time so yeah we we progressively moving away from these traditional services into more digital services and if if you don't have the coverage area or an affordable means to connect the greater part of a like predominantly rural continent then that 99% uptake that you talked about earlier will never realize. So there are two things I want us to sort of reach back into stuff we've discussed. Firstly, um, it's quite sobering to hear you speak about 
you know, something that's been raised once or twice before, or at least several times before on this podcast, which is the the unit economics for the current dispensation of telecommunications providers uh, trying to service everybody on the continent, including those in, in rural areas, just doesn't make sense. So the commercial argument for these people organically finding the the will to do it just just does not exist, um, which I guess speaks to why it's important that governments come on board because it's their primary mandate to take care of us, right? So that's the one thing I'd like to flag and maybe speak on a little more. The other thing is I was asking you to make the argument for why, say, a CECOM might be worried about you. And I can see now that they probably would want to take a meeting with you and and, and certainly be more friends than than foes with you. I can I still see, despite your argument, that the likes of an MTN or, you know, tele, you know mobile telecoms ought to be worried. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is more to do with the fact that their models aren't geared towards the future that's coming. Uh, it's more about that than perhaps the fact that they are inherently doomed to be left behind. What would you say to that? To address this question, we should perhaps look at a contemporary example of two companies operating in that space, and by that I mean, obviously, Rain and MTN. Okay, so what we, what we see now with MTN is you're correct in saying that they, they are, in fact, um, uh, restricted in their growth by, by having this 2G, 3G, and 1G network that they have to actively maintain. Um, and, then, and then also, whilst this all is being maintained, have to compete with 4G and now 5G as it potentially might like, uh, roll out in 2020. And there's a, an entire plethora of different technical challenges when it comes to 5G. Um, but so, so if you compare that to RAIN, RAIN... <laughs> They don't have. They don't have to compete with 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 voice channels. They're exclusively data, so they can work with four G and 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 four G of LTE plus or four G plus. Our listeners who are not familiar with Rain, it's a relatively new data network that's launched into in in, in South Africa. This is quite new to South Africa, but in many parts of the world, um, it's quite common to have like the mobile telcos, you know, the legacy players that have been there for for a while. But typically, as a visitor to say, you know, Paris or whatever, you'll typically, you know, buy a SIM from a company that isn't Orange. And, and maintaining this massive network of infrastructure, you'll you'll probably be serviced by a data only play, which has been relatively new to South Africa, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very it's 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 extremely new in that context. Most of all of the other operators have this legacy infrastructure, um, and so again, we back to that argument we made earlier. It's about um, figuring out how to se- um, deliver the same service or the same bandwidth, but more efficiently. That's why Mzanzi said at the moment, we are not interested in stepping into that market because it's our primary concern to run this product efficiently. We want to focus on one thing and do it exceptionally well. When it comes to, um, to players like Rain, they can step into the market and say, hold on, um, so we're going to focus on 4G and 4G only. And we're going to do that well. And so, so by just doing that, they don't have call centers, they don't have offices. Um, you get your SIM card through the mail. And these are all like if if you told that to a person ten years ago, they would have laughed and said, "This is this is a pyramid scheme. This is some weird, obscure business. It cannot exist." So, 
in that sense, MTN, I don't anticipate the telcos in South Africa would necessarily be disrupted. Um, and they're also in a very tough position in South Africa when it comes to spectrum regulation and frequency bandwidth availability and the actual cost of infrastructure. So it's 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 a tough market. It's an honestly, it's an extremely tough market. But they do have footprint. They have an existing book of prisoners, and they've got very strong brands. Which I imagine the challenge might be going forward: how do we leverage that for this weird and wonderful new world? of rains and Mzansi sets and how do we leverage that um, to to continue to thrive I think might be the challenge yeah look so there's there's a there's a there's a few alternative ways of looking at this um, I know Verizon and uh, I can't remember the the US but it's essentially a media house that have now partnered up um, I think it was is it Time One or AOL? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so in that business model, you are no longer the exclusive provider of information. So you no longer provide only the conduit; you also provide the content that feeds into the conduit, and that changes their business model. So, so where conventional telcos are terrified of OTTs, these over-the-top services, the more progressive ones embrace it and say, "Hey." Um, so this is a like let's consider something like Quesa, for instance. If if that were to be integrated with, not not broadcasting satellites, but simply digital like digital broadcasting services. So you create a platform that's now a little box that looks like DSTV, acts like DSTV, but it's actually both your internet and your TV. I mean, my perception of it is I think the reason this is so topical, commercial success for these corporations, listed ones especially, is still determined quarter to quarter over four-year cycles at most what do you think that's an unfortunate reality of of any corporate structure where you've got that four-year tenure and uh and you've got both your personal incentive to to move forward but um and that's why i i kind of speak directly to this and saying that with a with a satellite infrastructure you've got a 15-year window in which your entire ecosystem has a plenty of time to develop and in fact, by that time, you should have enough auxiliary services to expand beyond that, and and just reissue the resource. So it's it you, there's a there's this there's this excuse the lame reference, but it, there's a rat race in telecommunications for for pushing bandwidth. So when it comes to five G, uh, this is a new phone um, in 2018, and it's already obsolete, right? Um, and that's simply because it's the technology has advanced so quickly that um, 5G is now the new thing, and smartphones and home routers. I think it's only home home routers that have been specced for that, but it doesn't matter. Um, but so pretty soon, all the money that's being invested into 4G rollout in South Africa and across the continent will become obsolete and be um, be forced to be replaced by 5G. And now we restart the, the spectrum argument and we restart the cost of infrastructure and figuring out where people are. Um, and that's within the question, like that's within two years. And that's, that's where the question of who's actually at, and I keep bringing MTN up, I should say Vodacom at least once or twice. <laughs> so no, I, I, and I just, I think I'm starting to realize that when we, we throw the, the names of these brands out, I think there's a huge difference between the brands that are going to, in all likelihood, exist into the future for the next sort of 5, 10, 15 years. There's a big dif difference between talking and thinking about them as brands 
and thinking about them in the context of who's actually at their helm right now. Because I think everything we're discussing is is predicated on the prevailing leadership and its thinking and its agenda and and prerogatives right now. And I think I agree with you. Like I wonder who, if anybody, at these large telcos is tasked with or has KPAs that are linked to what MTN may or may not be in 15 years, I wonder. Um, I, I have no idea either. I, I, I can't even fully describe what the telco space would look like. It's, it's an impossible task. But um, we, we, yeah. It, hmm. So this is, I think, a great segue to now talk about Mzansi Set, right? Because I think in, in saying what I've just said, I can also see the challenge in trying to sell what you guys are trying to do to government, to a private sector that is self-obsessed with surviving the next quarter, the next four years, and not terribly incentivized to think about the long-term benefit of the average citizen over 15 plus years. So how do you make a case for we should exist, this absolutely makes sense, and we're the people to do this, given all that? Okay, so in that context, you can pull up examples of ex- of existing telcos at the moment buying um, large amounts of satellite bandwidth for this exact reason. To serve a temporary demand, it's a very dependable solution. So it's it's persistent, it will always be there, and you can bank against it. You can reliably forecast what your cost of access would be and within that make informed decisions. Whereas at the moment... Um, yeah, your end user cost, it will start fluctuating in all directions based on some new acquisition or some new installation. So I, I, I anticipate that satellite technology and geostationary satellites in this context actually gives refuge to the, in the storm. It, it provides a platform from, from which um, like reliable projections can be made. So I don't know. The, I don't know if I addressed the question, but I th- to some extent, I think, yeah. I think so. I think you're, you're, making, you're starting to make the commercial case or the economic case for why if I'm the CEO at a large mobile telco anywhere on the continent, I'd be nuts not to be taking a meeting with you guys. You should bear in mind that this is an existing infrastructure. It's by no means novel what we are proposing. The only thing that's different from, from what exists out there is that you would be paying for a service in rands, valued in rands, and buffered in rands. So there would be no external fluctuations. There's no external market. Oh, well, there's market forces. There will always be market forces. If there aren't, there's a big problem. Um, but essentially, you are you are leveraging it uh, as a Serafican company um, by the government for the, for the, the, the country. Um, whereas at the moment you've got a foreign foreign national company that steps in and they all sign these long-term agreements, but it's you're paying in euros or you're paying in dollars or you're paying in some other currency, and if inflation or like international forces change the winds, they just wash their hands and say, mm, "Sorry, like you are tied in. This is our legal requirement or your your um, due diligence responsibility." So yeah, in that in that case, we're offering a solution operated by South Africans for South Africans. In your experience so far, has this been a difficult thing to pitch? And if so, why or why not? What perhaps do these foreign suppliers in the space 
have on you guys? I presume the likes of Fusel Set might be one of them. No, look, there's a there's a plethora of competitors in this space, or about four major ones: Utilsat, Intelsat, some of the Saudi nations, um, and and that's essentially um, well numbers. They have a significant amount of satellites that have um, coverage areas throughout the continent, um, and so in in that sense, the sheer scale we cannot compete with. However, most of these services that they operate in is within the KA band. Now, the KA band is great unless a cloud happens to come along. So it's very high throughput, but it's very sensitive for bad weather conditions. Um, this is also forms part of something that's called the unregulated frequency band. In other words, it's kind of like a, uh, it's a free-for-all tournament. If you launch it, they will come. Um, whereas with the, the, the approach that we use, we use um, a coordinated resource with specific frequency bands that are allocated for the South African market. So in that sense, we get better coverage, better service, and higher throughput in a market that we are allowed to serve exclusively. You guys have definitely decided to go the route of looking to secure the buy-in of regulators and, and legislators, certainly governors within the country. That, I don't imagine, is the route Elon Musk is interested in pursuing, or at least appears interested in pursuing with his low-orbit satellite business. Give me the pros and cons of your approach, and perhaps the pros and cons of a sort of more gung-ho approach of, listen, whose space is this anyway? Excuse the pun. With, with regards to Elon's project, um, there's been many uh, analyses of, of his proposed solution. And essentially what it comes down to is the issue of sheer scale. So this is a brute force attack by like 3,000 to 6,000 like microsatellites that are operating and spinning around the globe. When it comes to orchestrating a solution like that, it's not impossible. And people forget that when you work in three-dimensional space like that, space, it becomes very spacious um, that's bad but <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one space becomes spacious um but so it's it's yeah he made a similar analogy when he's looking at the the tunnels like we don't we're not used to as humans operating in three-dimensional space yes i suppose people have said oh my word three thousand satellites won't that sort of blanket the earth won't this be this massive pollution which it will on some level because it's it's not like he's going to bring them back to Earth once they've stopped working, or at least maybe he has a plan to. But I, th there will be a lot of junk going into space. But your point is, there's a ton of space. Yeah, there's a ton of space. Um, the issue, however, is like these things for to for them to stay in orbit, they need um, either a sufficiently high velocity to remain in orbit because they like perpetually falling towards Earth, but just fast enough so they fall over the horizon. Um, but uh, then it's also an issue of actually orchestrating and keeping them in, keeping them in line. Um, and they would also have to be filed with the ITU. So it's, it's like the UN for space. So it's not like someone can just throw something in the air and say, voila. And sure, like this unregulated space, well, unregulated is a bit of a bad term for the word, but... Loosely regulated space. Yeah, um, most of the other commercial operators also abide by these laws, where a solution like Elon Musk's would uh, would potentially um, have the upper hand is that um, it would have much, much lower latency when it comes to data throughput, but much lower throughput per satellite or, or per shoebox, let's be honest, it's very small, um, micro CubeSat, that's a better word. 
But a geostationary satellite is a fixed solution. You've got a long-term projecting and it's easier to, um, the actual ground infrastructure to, to service it is also much easier. So think about this. Imagine you, uh, you see a friend of yours driving towards you on a like, slow-moving road and you try to communicate with him. Like you're both moving at like a certain velocity and you would have to like shout something as him as he's passing you and hoping he heard you because you now passed and you won't be able to communicate. Whereas if that same friend was just standing at the road, you're moving, that's fine, but at least the chance of him hearing you is much better. Now in a similar configuration, a CubeSat like that, um, especially 3,000 of them uh, dynamically moving around the globe, connecting to you as a person, would require very specialized, um, they call it phased array antennas. So it's kind of like, a imagine a DSTV dish that can change it, or like using the other analogy, you being able to change your head as you, as you drive by. Exactly the same idea. So the hardware on the ground would have to be rethought and redeveloped, re-engineered. I really love the, the, the masterclass you've just given me. I feel like your approach differs from, say, Elon's by and large because you guys have approached this from the standpoint of bringing government to the table as part of the project itself, as opposed to what I sense Elon is doing, which is I'm going to do this, but you're going to wake up one day and my satellites will be in a position to beam cheap internet into your countries, whether you like it or not. Now, I don't know if he's ever said it in that, in that respect, but that's certainly the sense you get in his approach, which I sense is not what you guys are saying. Give me a sense of why you guys have chosen to go the route of being a nationalized resource or partially nationalized resource and, and essentially just ensuring that government in South Africa is not just okay with you, but really in business with you. Yeah, working in close cooperation. Um, so that's fundamentally what I mentioned earlier. Like um, if you're looking, if you're in the Northern Cape and you need access to information or education, schooling, um, uh, the idea of, of bandwidth and access to information being a basic human right um, if if you do not, by some means, ensure that that saving um, is carried over to the consumer, ultimately that entire idea or ideology around the 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 importance of information or the access, yeah, the almost the basic human right of information will never materialize. So we've partnered with the state for that reason to say, hey. Um, we can provide the service to the country, but for this to be in any way enforced, we need to have you um, support us and support the industries. And essentially, I, I use the word subsidize. It's not technically a subsidy, but essentially carry over that saving to the consumer. Um, and that's the only way I can anticipate a few issues in our country being solved as well, like education and medicine and remote access. And yeah, like it, it's... But it is also a smart fix economically for your business in terms of like reaching viability quite quickly and quite um, uh, predictably, right? Is it not? Yes, it's. I yeah, I would I would say so. We've got a very strong established history in South Africa with a few state-owned entities that do work in satellite. In, um, satellite. Um, there was SunSpace. Our CEO Bartolier. Um, was the managing director of uh, of Sunspace. They 
designed and developed and produced international satellites for various like countries and for South Africa, in fact. Um, so we, we fundamentally understand the power that South Africa has. And, and we understand that by partnering with the state, we also get access to auxiliary industries that would support this the solution. We also provide the, the ability for the state to look after its sovereign rights and with peacekeeping operations. So there's there's a lot of um, state asset that is that is built. I would yeah I would say baked into the solution. Help me here with as much as you can share about the financials of this business, how it's structured, and what a good day at the office looks like when this is all in sort of running well. Um, all the sort of investment you've you've been looking for has landed. You have clients, and everything looks great. So, talk me through, you know, that whole process, and perhaps where you guys are on that timeline. Okay. Um, so, in that context, uh, Mzanzi Sat are the owners of a coordinated orbital resource. Um, we are we propose with close relationship or close integration with the South African government to combine these resources um, into a single payload or a single configuration. The unit value of a resource like that is roughly 67 million euros. Okay, um, So if you combine those two, you essentially have a bankable resource of about 150 million euros. To launch a geostationary satellite, you're looking. So, let me stop you there. What 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 are the aspects of that? What does that consor- what's that consortium made out of? Um, so so that consortium um, would be Mzanzisat and the state, each contributing a resource um, in a fifty one percent forty nine percent equity share. So you guys would control it? No no no, other way around. So government would control it. Yeah. 51% government. Um, and in that context, uh, a satellite itself, um, just the launch and the primary ground, ground control segment um, would be anything between 300 and 400 million euros. And then about 25% per annum to actually operate it. So it's, it's an expensive business. So who would be bringing what to the table? So in that context, um, Mzanzisat would be bringing to the table their resource, the state theirs, and we would then, as Mzanzi said, um, facilitate the financing for this launch of, of the actual satellite itself, as well as the ground control segment. Um, uh, yeah. So upon that, um, we anticipate a income or revenue based on that of about 120, 130 million euros per annum. Over what sort of period? Over that 15-year period you talked about? Annually. So no. Oh, snap. Annually? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so in that sense, it does pay itself back rather quickly. Um, and then... Uh, I'd say... A brief- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, that's not the primary aim. That's why... Look, I mean, let's talk about it. Look, I mean, shout out to you. You were clearly one of our day ones listening to the show and stuff like that. And um, you, so you, because of that, you know how important it is for us to sort of figure out, wrap our minds around like the finances of this. So this is good for us. When I say us, anyone who lives in South Africa who's going to benefit from this thing when it comes online, certainly good for us, but really good for you as well in pure capitalist terms. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but we could have run with the industry standard and said, hey, guys, this is the standard cost of information. Let's just run with it. We don't have to do that. We can, we can drop it down to a very narrow margin 
and still make it pro- economically viable. States and governments realize that they have access to a resource like this and that they have the capacity to serve their country. And fundamentally, that our solution is not unique to South Africa, but we have partnered with South Africa as an, as a, as an example. And so presumably anyone listening to us in any other part of the world, certainly on the continent, they need to realize that the contracts that they keep on rolling over with foreign entities because, quote unquote, we can't do this ourselves, needn't be that way. No. And, and that's where Mzanzi said, position ourselves. We are the entity that, would, that, that, that aim to facilitate that service across the continent. Remember, like the first words I said was not to change the way South Africans connect, but the continent connects. And that's, that's, especially, that's what we aim to do. So, so South Africa is a stepping stone for us. We aim to scale to the continent. We aim to include more. And there's, there's, a, there's a plethora of, of beneficial strategies where four neighboring countries would say, hey, guys, let's do this. Let's club together and say as the Central African region, let's do this for ourselves or East Africa or Northern African states that have you know, massive swathes of, of desert space that presumably no one is going to serve us anytime soon might club together and go, listen, we can do this together. And, and we're already there. We've already sat down with about 12 African states and the regulatory authorities of these states where they approached us and said, hey guys, this sounds amazing. Where, what, what, how can we go? And we said, listen, so we're in discussion. Like, let's, let's take the solution and make it yours. And, and that's exactly where we want to position ourselves. So speak to me as a, as a taxpayer in South Africa, a Zimbabwean, but, you know, faithfully, faithfully remitting that tax right here in the, on the continent. So speak to me as a taxpayer um, who wants to know what the implication in the short to medium term is to me as a taxpayer. Um, because, I mean, given the numbers you've said, I mean, government's going to need to commit a, a significant amount of its resources to to finance something of this nature how in practical ways is this going to affect me as a taxpayer um, so i think i I might have not made myself clear earlier um zanzi sat aims to finance the launch and operational segment okay so wait a minute i heard you say that but i assumed that the 51 percent stake that the state um you know is going to assume in this project I mean, when you said they bring resources to the table, I thought that's what you meant, that, they, that there is some, some sort of set-up cost or something that the government's going to need to sort of give up to participate or give in or contribute. Um, that contribution is a contribution in kind by um, the, the, the orbital resource allocated to the country. Now, this is the important part. The under Appendix 30B, the ITU made accommodation for every single country in the world, regardless of size, to have access to a geostationary satellite solution. It's a lot of words. Basically what it means, <laughs> that you get access to a parking spot in space. Okay, What we propose is for an, an additional resource on top of that to be filed and be contributed to Mzanzi Sat or the, the essential public-private partnership. Um, so in that sense, you don't lose your resource. It's still perfectly normal. It's still there. Um, you simply apply for an additional resource for the economies of that satellite to make sense. And of course, that's something only a sovereign state can do. Exactly. Exactly. 
So it's a close partnership with the state for the state. Yeah. I'm getting goosebumps just talking to you because I'm like, dang, you guys have thought this through. How long has it taken for you guys to be at the position you're at now? Like from the moment this is an idea or on a napkin in Stellenbosch <laughs> to where we are now. Like what? Talk me through it. Um, so you're going to laugh at me, but in excess of 25 years. Um, so our CFO, um, Vincent, he's been in the telecommunications and satellite telecommunications industry for like his entire mature like working life. He's been in that space. And this, and this opportunity is, is his dream. It's his baby. It's his child that he's been nurturing. Um, with regards to South Africa, we've been active since 2009. And, and so we've been working at this and chipping away and figuring out the nuances and making it happen for a very long time. And we are finally at the point where we want to sit down and say, hey guys, we've done our homework. We've been around for a while. We've got the most competent people that we could find. So we've got Barcelier, which is he's, he's a, like an institution when it comes to satellite technology in South Africa. We've got Vincent. Um, I'm just a, a chemical engineer that went into computing and then like IT and like, yeah, you know, just a curious person. Ach, shame. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so we've been, been around the block and, uh, and if I need to project now, um, look, I, I've, we've played open cards so far. Um, there's nothing that stops a nation from doing this. The only thing that stops them is the coordination process with the ITU will take at least five to eight years. That is allocating the frequency, getting the parking spot, and ensuring that it's available for parking. It's kind of like phoning your hotel and just making sure you can park at your hotel, which is absurd. And that, that's, it's a regulatory process. You essentially have to look at the frequency bands that are available. You have to look at your neighboring countries. Um, what frequencies are they operating at currently? Are there any conflicts of interest? Is there any destructive interference? So it's kind of like... Destructive to what? Presumably other interests that are already in space. Yeah. So when you have... Um, beam, it's, it's like being in a noisy coffee shop with like a bunch of Wi-Fi signals and no one can actually connect. Same story. So will I dominate that coffee shop by just showing up with a very strong Wi-Fi router? That kind of idea. Um, and so, and so, this coordination process um, and legal process takes a very long time—five to eight years, like I said. And because we have that orbital resource available, and that is, it is coordinated. In other words, we've jumped through all those hoops. Um, it's it's about two-year process. So if we if we if we approach uh, various state entities, um, uh, we know exactly. Yeah, DTPS. Um, if we approach them and say, hey guys, um, you've got this opportunity and and they make a filing for additional resource, two years and we can launch. So you're saying roughly three to four years of that process involve uh, engaging a consortia that of your, of your ilk to basically do certain things or be in a position to deliver technically on on an application you're making and you're making so you you're like the startup hack for the system is it, am i getting that right yeah yeah we're essentially a a, a a shortcut we've already done our due diligence it's simply now a matter of like joining forces and making it happen and so you've turned this into a plug a two to three year plug and play for any country that wants to do this Exactly. Are you trying to spark a gold rush? Not a gold rush, but are you? Is is that the intent, or are you, frankly, in a position to service anyone who comes to the table? Let's assume seven, eight countries 
want to sign up with you within a year of the show going live? Like, are you in a position to deliver on that? Up to four. <laughs> that's fantastic. I, I, lo- I love how straight you are. Yeah, no, honestly, up to four. Um, and that's by no means exclusive to South Africa either. Like I said, we are South Africans, so we would like that solution to be catered first and foremost to South Africa. But that's by no means exclusive. Um, if if we get denied the opportunity to provide the state with a valuable service, we've got a continent. So, yeah, I'm, I'm honestly not concerned about that. It's my primary. I was born and raised here. Yeah, like, I, I, this is my blood. But, um, yeah. There's varying levels of trust and confidence in governments across the continent. And... I suspect that's probably from a consumer standpoint. I know you're not speaking to me necessarily, and and I'm not the one you need to sell on this necessarily. But I do think there is a question of whether or not the margin or the savings that you're going to deliver to governments and potential savings to citizens will actually materialize given that your solution doesn't actually disrupt completely or just the the status quo and i think that goes back to the to my sense earlier where there's that little socialist capitalist in me that wants to see a little more disruption than perhaps you're suggesting because i sense that on some level perhaps that's the only way and i'm not saying it is i'm just saying there's a sense in me that sometimes the only way to see things change really change is is for the 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 old god to lose completely and give way to a new way of of, of life what what do you make of that so so let me ask you this um living in south africa what would your definition for um a reasonably priced gigabyte be you mean right now yeah yeah so i'd say eight bucks would be fair in my mind um yeah eight bucks yeah, so so when we refer to like twenty five rand, sub twenty five rand, that's a very conservative estimate. Um, given our setup and our configuration, we have the potential to push that way down. Like if you look at ADSL in South Africa at the moment, you're looking at sub. That's the only industry that's sub ten ten rand at the moment. Um, like right above that is, let me just get this straight. Um, so it's in order of increasing price, it's uh, ADSL. Then you have um, wireless point-to-point. Then you've got fiber. Then you've got um, uh, LTE. Um, above that, you've got uh, mobile. And at the very top, you've got satellite services. And these are all external satellite operators. So if you have the ability to... And, and so the first few... The um, are all fixed terrestrial, okay, and they can drop those margins because um, let's be honest, it's like what ten percent of the population that they can serve, and that's great, that's awesome, but the grunt of the population is that sixty-seven rand per gigabyte average of the mobile networks, so if you can disrupt that sixty-seven and drop that below, comparably to the price of ADSL, uh, there's no way that you're not gonna like throw over the cart. Okay, all right. I'm with you now. Because there's also the side of me that's just um, not sensible and just wants everything to be free. Yeah. Well, I, 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 being, a, being who I am, I believe data should be free, but I, that not, that's not a company opinion. That's my opinion. Yeah. I, I totally get you. But also, I mean, it, I mean so, that's, so you'd be quite happy in a country like, I don't know, Norway or Denmark or somewhere like that where like, 
in order for that to happen, you'd be willing personally, maybe as a as a citizen, to be taxed to a certain, uh, assuming certain efficiencies in government, you'd be hap- you'd happily be taxed sixty seventy percent of your income in order for that to be possible. No, I would I would I would fundamentally change how we regulate frequency. That's like the chairman of the ITU, Mr. Chao. Uh, like he, he he walked in several meetings and he jokingly said, uh, "Maybe we should just make this free before we even start this conversation." Like advising nations on how they should go about charging for reg- for for spectrum regulations. Now, right back to our conversation at the beginning, the whole Levi's thing. It, does that speak to his sense of how? Doing that would enable like an unspeakable or unlock an unspeakable unspeakable amount of economic value that we are yet to even contemplate. So, 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 so think about this for a second. Um, have you ever paid attention to the wireless point-to-point networks um, that, that exist throughout South Africa? The number of companies, number one, and how quickly and like um, like far like far-fetched they are. Like they are absurd. They're everywhere. There's like. Like I think there's like 250 registered companies that work in this space. And that's because they're operating in a free, unregulated, competitive arena. Like they have to drop their prices. Like everyone can. Most of, I, I promise you, most of these companies was a guy that set up with a Wi-Fi router and realized like, oh, damn, I can provide Wi-Fi to my neighbor. And that was a business opportunity. That guy is now empowered. Sure, he might have been bought over. No, that's fine. But but yeah, like hero tells like buying these people left right and center exactly exactly but but sure like initially for any any system to work you need like mass seeding mass uptake and then consolidation of power whereas at the moment it's like two three entities and they're just standing at the top dancing um whereas if you sell and make that open like anyone can start like i can start a like wireless network in my living room and that will be cool i'll be serving like my friends and then eventually i can maybe charge for it uh, what what is, why is that not happening? Yeah. All right. All right. Well, Joe, here's, here's a conversation that started out. Um, well, it was earmarked for like 25 to 30 minutes and we're well over an hour now, but I, I feel really good. Thank you so much for dropping by and, and chatting us through um, this, this very interesting commercial endeavor you guys have going. Give me a sense of what would be a good outcome. Like someone listening to this, responding to everything they've heard what sort of response are you do you anticipate speak to like the different people so who's listening we have policymakers listening right now we have founders uh listening we have investors listening which brings me to another question i i I meant to have asked earlier but then we got carried away like where's the money coming from for all this like how what's what's funding this consortium and whose money is it and but yeah, investors are listening to it. So in answering the question, you can touch on that. Um, and then every day, you know, citizens of Africa, Africa-focused citizens of the world, all listening. What would be, what would be an incredible outcome for you? Um, speak as, as yourself, speak as the business, do both. So that's a whole bunch of questions. Start with, yeah, are you guys looking for investment? You clearly sound like you've got that on lock. And if so, like we're, where is it from if you can speak on that so so investment we we've established partners and we we're fairly confident that we've uh, we've approached the right people and we have an established relationship with them so you're not looking so that's not an outcome you need you're not needing anyone to call you and go hey um do you guys need an extra hundred mil <laughs> yeah no that's not necessarily it 
But there's a very easy solution now for anyone listening to this internationally would just say, ha, huh, okay, so they're going to need like specialized equipment to, to communicate with these satellites. They're going to need specialized hardware for the dishes, for the LMBs, for the installations. Um, and to that I say, if you're a South African, if you have any experience in this context, give us a call. Let's, let's build it. I firmly believe that every single ground segment, every single installation, every single piece of equipment that we aim to install in people's houses on towers, that we can build it, we can make it South African, and we can make it for the continent. We don't need to rely on foreign forces for every single thing. If you're a telco... Um, and a small wireless point-to-point -point distributor. And if you get tired by like getting cut off all the time with like some repeater some, in some obscure tower somewhere breaking, just consider putting down a single dish with a Wi-Fi network. That's possible. You no longer need to actually have data being beamed in from Durban or some obscure place. You can just have it where you need it. If you're a consumer and you're interested in this, if you're a mine and you're thinking, look, I've got a lot of data that I need to communicate across the continent, somewhere in, in like rural, Af not rural, I hate that word, remote um, Africa, give us a call. Like we can connect you point to point. And if you're a state, look, we are open for discussion and we have done our homework. We have the established relationships. Um, and we are more than willing to sit down and have a conversation on how we can make this solution work for you. All right. And I noticed you, you skimmed over where the money's coming from. Is it institutional money? Give me a sense. Um, I'm, I'm not at liberty. I don't know. He has no idea. No, he does. But he don't tell me. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm the engineer. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I pushed him, folks. I pushed him. The, the point is the money's here, uh, the consortium's together. Bernard Reiling of Mzansi Set, thank you so much for being on the African Tech Roundup. Yeah, Amdila, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. So no sooner than I'd switched off the mic, I had to turn it back on because uh, I just noticed, or thinking back over the conversation I've been having with Bernard, uh, he's been referring to information as a right, as opposed to internet as a right. I'm curious about why, Bernard. Okay, so, so with regards to information, um, you can make a very clear distinction between um, information, data, and intelligence. What it means, what, how do you distinguish these three factors? So in my mind, um, information is simply the, like, it, it's a stream that simply comes to you, whereas uh, intelligence is the actionable interpretation of information and data. So, so that, I think that's a very clear distinction that should be made. Just because you can access the internet doesn't mean everything's good. I happen to have a bugbear about the whole notion of internet, right? Particularly the brand of that notion as peddled by Mark Zuckerberg and other people who clearly, I think, and this is being harsh, but who clearly weaponized the notion to, to sort of suit their agenda yeah. as a company or whatever. Yeah. So you're, you're playing into the business model of uh, if, if the service is free or the product, right? Um, so, yeah, like that's very much not, I, I think... Um, uh, but now, now information is power. Is also it's it's a very thin line. It is a very thin line because now information. Even, I think the last time we had this debate was easily over a year ago, and before this whole, before the nasty year that Facebook was going to have, and now even when we say information, and and also now in the Trump era, that means a whole bunch of different things. But is it fair to say that? Um, what we like to say over here holds true. Oversimplification is the enemy. And I think there's a prevailing narrative that internet will save the world 
and that there are problems in places like Africa and other parts of the developing world that will somehow magically disappear because people have access to the internet. And, and that is a vast oversimplification. However, especially in the context of the net neutrality debate, again, I suppose I'm turning on this, this mic to, to, to open a whole can of worms, which doesn't make sense because we don't have time to go down this, this rabbit hole. But you get my point? Um, you, I think it's important that you distinguish between um, information and, like you said, weaponized intelligence. They don't like companies like Facebook don't deal in information; they deal in intelligence. It's very actionable. It's very granular. It's very specific, and it's very um, susceptible to to insight. Whereas um, information, for the sake of it being contributing to the global body of human knowledge. That is how I how I distinguish, and that's how I refer to information, and that's predominantly maybe my upbringing, and not upbringing, but my my exposure in life. Yeah, it's just I the the almost utilitarian like the utility of information as opposed to it being, yeah. And I suppose it's important to make that distinction in in your business, in your line of business, because when you're speaking to you know government, for example. You, you do want to communicate on the basis of what their obligation is to their citizenry is versus or what version of that they're being sold by a Cisco or an IBM or an, a Facebook, which sometimes is, 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 isn't inherently unwholesome, but isn't necessarily the same as ensuring that, say, every child who, who's born to this continent gets everything they need to make a success of life. That isn't the same as perhaps what an IBM rep might sell. No, it's not. Um, there's always agendas. People like, and and it it makes it difficult stepping into an uh, in a telco space where you are just say, hey, we are looking to partner up with the government, and then make yourself independent of these influences. So in that sense, um, it's important to to also um, to emphasize that a satellite in this context is simply a relay of information. So there isn't any sort of data play that you guys have as part of your roadmap that puts you in a position to, say, take on Google or something like that? Um, no, that I, I can openly say I, I've, I've specced and it's no. Why would we why would we position ourselves in that way? Yeah. Google's like, what the heck? These people are nuts. They're leaving money on the table. Well, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a particular kind of business model. Sure. If the service is free or the product. Our service is not free. That's our product. I think that's where we're going to leave it for now. Thanks again, Bernard. It's a big pleasure, honestly.